Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. And this is a podcast about policy, culture, identity, race, and how all of those things intersect. Yeah. And if you'd like to support the show, you can get your How Do You Want Your Reparations t-shirt and or mug at www.attheintersection.bigcartel.com. Today, I wanted to talk about um, schools, okay. teachers, okay. and more specifically, where the teachers at, because <laughs> um, we're, we're experiencing a teacher shortage, mm-hmm. um, a teacher exodus. Um, and so I think that, like, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about the labor force recently and like happy to talk more about the labor force trends or whatever. But Do you have some sort of expertise about labor? Not really, you? No, I didn't I think mean, so. <laughs> You know what we have not talked about? The fact that I've changed jobs three times. <laughs> Just in the recording of this podcast, I mysteriously have kept the same job <laughs> and got promoted. But you have just been hopping like a true millennial. From, you got to do what you got to do. From B to B to B. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, I would like to talk about that. I don't know if it's this podcast, this episode, or or, or not. But um, I don't know. Maybe we can we can talk about that at some point well maybe but i know that one of the positions you held before this podcast was teacher so yeah so uh yeah so maybe we can start there my first job out of undergrad was a teacher um and so i come from a family of teachers my mom's a teacher my grandfather his sisters um my great-grandmother taught french um so so long line of teachers in my family um, and that's not extremely uncommon um, for black folk. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, like teaching was one of those, you know, you're going to be a teacher or a preacher. Um, and it's one of those professions that actually did offer like, you know, some hope for upward mobility for, um, you know, being able to buy a home, all these things. Or I should say teacher, preacher, and then joining the military. Because um, yeah. um, both of my grandparents joined the military and that's how they ended up going to college. Anyway. That's not this episode. Um, (laughs) More on the racist implications of the GI Bill at another time. But um, I did want to talk about teaching, one, because we have not talked about public education actually on this podcast ever, I don't believe. That is shocking. It is shocking. Wow, Um, if true. And and at least for me, part of the reason is it's such a big, such a big topic. It could be its own podcast in and of itself. Um, But we've been given a gift um, that is Abbott Elementary. Oh, man. And I was talking to Brianna about this the other day. I was saying, like, remember when we were teaching and I said that somebody should make a sitcom because nobody would believe the stuff that's happening <laughs> right now? And then Quinta made a Quinta, sitcom about Quinta it. Quinta heard your prayer. <laughs> she did. So if you don't know, um, Abbott Elementary is an Emmy Award-nominated show Um on ABC, um, bringing back uh, network sitcoms. Is it a sitcom? It is a sitcom. Yeah, it definitely Yeah, does. bringing back network sitcoms. Um, created by Quinta Brunson, who plays a second grade teacher at a Philadelphia elementary school. It stars Janelle James. Um, it stars Everybody Hates Chris, a.k.a. Tyler James Williams. Oh, uh, it stars Chessie from uh, The Parent Trap. Uh, yep, a.k.a. Lisa Ann Walter. Mm-hmm. Um, it stars Cheryl Lee Ralph, who the original Dina. Yes. Um, Chris Preferetti. Never heard of him. <laughs> and William Stanford, who I've been watching some of his old interviews. Uh-huh. And it's just a really pleasant man. I believe that. Um, that shines <laughs> So, you know, Abbott Elementary is about um, this group of teachers teaching in Philadelphia public schools and um, you know, there are so many things to say about the show. It's a mockumentary. It's hilarious. It's endearing. It's one of those shows that can make you laugh and then tear up in 30 minutes. 
um, including commercials. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's really hard to do that. Like, there's not a lot of shows that could do that. I think what makes Abbott work, though, um, is that, one, it focuses on the children. The child actors are amazing. Hilarious. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't rely on kind of these, like, really played out tropes. Um, that we would expect to see um, on a show about a public school system, right? Mm, like, especially with a lot of black kids. Mm-hmm. It doesn't focus on like, oh, these kids are bad and we can't control them, which mm-hmm. is like the over, just the prevailing narrative um, that we often kind of see um, when talking about schools. Um, it focuses on these teachers who are trying to do the best they can with the with not much at all, mm-hmm. um, which is very close to reality. Um, but it it shows them as goofy. It shows them as having these small and big wins. Um, and at the end of the day, the kids are always okay, which is, I think, important for a show like this. Um, yeah, so I love Abbott Elementary. Um, and it has, it, it's, it's, it is the driving factor behind this episode. This episode of At the Intersection was brought to you by Abbott. <laughs> Brought to you by the Emmy campaign for Abbott Elementary. If y'all don't give Quinta her gold, <laughs> we will have problems. Pretty much. So I thought in order to answer the question of where the teachers are at, we need to do kind of a brief deep dive. A what? Um, a history on lesson. On the history of public education. <laughs> From Brian Kennedy. <laughs> It's almost like you were a history major and a teacher. So, you know, before public schools were a thing, because they have not always been a thing, um, schooling was kind of like a free-for-all. So um, it was really a hodgepodge. Um, You had church-sponsored schools. You had kind of small, localized private schools. You had boarding schools for the uber-wealthy. You also had, like, Indian boarding schools for, uh, you know, for America's— Genocide. Yes. Um, You had benevolent societies who— What are those? These are, like, old school— So have you seen Gilded Age? No. (laughs) Sorry. I don't know how to explain. (laughs) I know that you asked me to watch this like nine months ago, and I was like, "Eh, it's not on my list. I mean, you know, it's like these old school charities from, you know, um, the 17th, 18th century, 19th century even, where, um, you know, they felt sorry for the impoverished um, children, Mm -hmm. and they created these schools to give them the social skills quote unquote, that they needed in order to be successful and integrate into modern society. Got it. Is there there one in the Gilded Age? No, but it it just gives that vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Continue. Um, Think oil baron, like an oil baron. Sure, sure, sure. Um, There were also, you know, traveling schoolmasters. So people would, you know, travel and they would go around and, you know, say that they were teaching. Um, there were quote unquote dame schools, which were essentially, you know, schools to teach girls how to be women. Um, I think I went to one of those friends. Actually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, um, and so essentially all that to say, there was no standardization of what schooling looked like. Um, you know, a lot of, we were still very much an agricultural economy. Um, and so there wasn't the same emphasis on needing to um, go to get like a liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the economy, a lot of the jobs were kind of, you would learn them through apprenticeships and, and things like that. Um, and so kind of where the shift happened um, was this idea that in order to have a strong economy, um, in order to have, uh, it was kind of tied to principles of democracy, in order to have a strong functioning democracy, um, we needed to have some sort of public education or some sort of publicly supported education system. I say that in a way that like that, that was not, the way that I summed that up was the not the way that it was being thought of at any point in time. Um, <laughs> Wait, well, how was it being thought of? <laughs> I, I think that what we saw were early um, remnants of what would become um, kind of models for public education mm. in towns. Gotcha. So towns would come together and say like, hey, um, we need to do something with all these children that are running around. How about we, you know, kick in, pay some taxes and hire some teachers and we can send the kids there. Gotcha. Um, 
it also looked really differently on um, in southern states than it did kind of in northern economies just because, Not you shocking. know, there were different infrastructures. So I think schooling um, in rural communities in the south um, were similar um, kind of community-based schools. Um, but, you know, they less weren't necessarily, yeah, less infrastructure. They weren't necessarily tied to um, to government or taxes. Actually, what it looked like probably were the pods that a lot of families created during COVID, right? So, mm-hmm. like, if you had the means, if you had the resources, um, if you had the community, you could send your kids to school somehow. But, um, you know, there are, like, antidotal you know, records of how these schools function, but there were no, there, the Common Core did not exist. There was no standardized well, national shame. curriculum back then. <laughs> um, so I don't know how they learned math, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's kind of what, what it looked like. So what we start to see towards the end of the 18th century, um, as the U.S. is expanding westward, mm-hmm. westward expansion, are um, our, our land grants. And so um, you've probably heard of land grant universities, but land grants are essentially so land grant universities are universities. For the listeners, <laughs> I just shook my head with a deer in headlights. Look at this. This again, history major. <laughs> I'm not a nerd. I don't know what you're I'm talking about. I'm not like you. <laughs> you've probably heard of land grant universities. What are those? So land grants. Uh-huh. Land grants started off as a way for the federal government to say this we're going to give this federal land um, to this local government or this state or whatever it was whatever the governing body was to specifically use this land um, to build on to create an educational campus or school or whatever it may be today we have land-grant universities so North Carolina A&T is a land-grant university for example okay. um, North Carolina State University we're based in North Carolina so I'm only going to use North Carolina examples there are no other the only states ones that matter. Yeah. Um, so so you know these these universities received um, land their original grant quote you know from the federal government um, for the purpose of establishing institutions of learning um, and it was essentially um, our Practically, the federal government's way of saying, like, we think there should be a federal or there should be a government role in education um, and physical land is the way that we're going to do that. From there, um, you know, education kind of started to catch on a little bit. Um, The first things we saw were, again, kind of small, small towns, our communities coming together and creating what were called common schools. Um, and so they were primarily teaching the three R's, which is um, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yep. Um, and and along with these uh, common schools, really came along the idea that education um, is a public good, that it should maybe be you know universalized, that there should be more kids in school. And so in about at in 1830, about 55% of children ages 5 to 14 um, were enrolled in public school. And by 1870, that number actually went all the way up to 78%. So it's a pretty big increase uh, through the 1800s. High school is a different um, situation. Yeah. I think in 1910, maybe 17% of high school age students uh, were in school or had graduated from school. Um, and that didn't really increase until the middle of the um, the 20th century, actually. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, it's still, it, it varied from place to place. Even today, um, public education varies tremendously from place to place. And that's largely a result of funding um, and also, you know, state legislators and their decisions, which we can talk more about later. But point is, um, you know, it really the, the 1800s saw a huge rise um, in kind of how we understand public education to, as we see it today. Um, now, one thing that's really interesting to me um, is that the first state um, that actually created and funded a public education system in their state constitution was South Carolina. Um, so going back to our, we've talked about this, we've talked about Reconstruction on this podcast before. Yes, an incredible era in American history. An incredible but short era in American history. Because right? it was so, because <laughs> it was so <laughs> it was pro-black so and progressive. <laughs> it was, it was like, so incredible. They were like, that's enough of that. <laughs> that acted out way too much. <laughs> a key prime example, right? So, Southern states that rebelled um, 
as a part of the Civil War, in order to be readmitted into the Union, they had to have constitutional conventions and rewrite their constitution. South Carolina, um, well, let me back up. A majority of these states had large black populations Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, they had been— Due to slavery. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Due to enslaving large black populations. (laughs) Yep. So South Carolina actually at the time um, was a majority black state. So a majority of the people living in the state of South Carolina were black. Because um, Reconstruction was so successful at the time, because the enfranchisement of black men to vote was being protected by federal troops, um, a majority of the delegates at the 1819, at the 1868 um, South Carolina Constitutional Convention were actually black. Oh, wow. Um, That constitution, in that constitution, they did a couple of things. They abolished debtor's prison. (laughs) (laughs) They was they was about it. They they provided for public. They created a public education system and funded it. They abolished property ownership as a qualification for office holding. Um, They granted this is they granted, quote unquote, some rights to women. Just some, Um, you know, just as a treat. (laughs) And and so, um, you know, this is the first time a state has said in their state constitution that um, you have a right to. And education mm-hmm. and that the state will provide that the state will pay for that um, and inherently then that there's some sort of standardization in that as well um, you know that of course ended immediately um, what ended reconstruction yep. and <laughs> a progressive era pro-black anything <laughs> yeah all the all the rights that came with reconstruction mm-hmm. so you know if you're thinking back of like, I didn't know we had, you know, black folk were welcome in public schools in, in 1869. It's I didn't it know that wasn't... black folk were able to make like a huge political decision that shaped, you know, how we see something today. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Reconstruction ends in 1877. Um, I think arguably it ended in South Carolina a little bit earlier than that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it officially ends in 1877. And, and so that's when, um, you know, they reinstitute um, just very strict segregation policies, black codes, um, all these things that um, if we have not talked about on a previous episode. We have. We, I know I'm that sure we've we talked have. about black codes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm sorry. If, I say we. I know that you have talked about black codes. If we have, and we can do a quick, you we know, sidebar, quick, sidebar. You know. <laughs> uh, quick, 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 quick Let's lecture. Let's do a, a shallow dive while we're in this deep dive. And so really from... 1877, the end of Reconstruction, um, really up until the mid-1900s, until we get Brown v. Board, um, we do see the growth of a public education system. Um, But as many of us know, like, it was uh, an equitable growth of the public education system. Um, What we did see during that time, um, this is going back to land-grant universities, we saw a lot of colleges and universities that were created for the explicit purposes of educating black educators. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so— um, Educating black students? Educa- well, the, educating black students with the hope of making them black educators. Gotcha. Yeah, so, so, you know, North Carolina Central, for example, was originally a teacher's college. Um, Winston-Salem State University was originally a teacher's college. So a lot of these universities originated— um, Really, around the be the turn of the century, the turn of the eighteenth to the the twentieth, nineteenth to twentieth. I'm bad with centuries because you got to go back. <laughs> One back. <laughs> We're really around the turn of the nineteenth, twentieth century. Um, a lot of universities, a lot of teacher colleges popped up because, um, you know, a, there was a there was a need to fund um, to put teachers into these newly created schools um, um, and. And because they couldn't attend white universities. Um, right. So anyway, long way of saying, um, you know, there was a kind of a long, slow bubbling um, um, crawl towards public education until it was kind of formalized into what we see today. Um, of course, like after Brown v. Board, um, there was massive resistance in Virginia. Um, you know, in Boston, they tore everything down for really decades. They just resisted. Um <laughs> And and then, you know, that's where we that really brings us up to today. Um, <laughs> <It does. laughs> From does. 1956 to today. <laughs> um, not much has changed. So <laughs> so then, you know, 
that's that's kind of how we got to the system of public education that we see today. Um, you know, there because these universities were created for the explicit purpose of educating teachers, you know, teaching was really heralded. And I mean, I think continues to be as a really noble profession. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something that you it, because it is a, a state sponsored job, oftentimes um, you'd have access to really good benefits if you were a teacher. Um, you could retire from teaching um, and have a pension and support, you know, you could support your family off, the, off of teaching. Um, so, you know, for decades, really, it has been held um, and even longer, maybe for a century, it's been held as this like really noble, um, super important, just critical um, profession. So why are teachers leaving today? So what I wanted to do, I, I wanted to I, I looked at a couple of different surveys to see why teachers are saying that they're leaving. Oh, um, <laughs> what an innovative idea. <laughs> so so um, one survey done by the National Education Association um, found that 55 percent of teachers um, in their current survey were thinking about leaving earlier than they had planned. Um the poll also found that there was a disproportion of black um, and Hispanic teachers, uh, so 62 and 59 percent respectively, who were thinking about leaving. Um, another survey um, done in just North Carolina of North Carolina teachers found similar trends. Um, a lot of teachers were actually considering leaving after within two years. So it wasn't just like, I don't think I'm going to be able to retire in this profession. People are actually actively thinking like, I'm like looking for another job. I, yeah, I'm on my way out. Um, I mean, anecdotally, like my mother left the classroom um, right in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of colleagues also left around the same time. Similarly, just it was really challenging. Um, in a survey done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, they found that 90 percent of teachers said that burnout was a really serious issue. Mm-hmm. Um, teachers also cited stress from the pandemic. Um, they said that unfulfilled job openings requiring them to do more work was a reason of leaving. Um, They said that the pay was too low, which we will talk about. Um, They said lack of respect from parents and the public. Um, So kind of a feeling that this profession just isn't as revered as it once was, um, which is also related to pay and all these other things. Um, And then there are things like um, not enough structured planning time, which is actually, you know, kind of a consistent, um, consistent issue that a lot of teachers find issue have have taken issue with. Mm -hmm. The other thing about that is that I think there's huge discrepancies in um, what type of supports teachers get and what type of schools they are, where those schools are located, how they're funded. I'm trying not to get into a whole conversation about property taxes and racial and housing segregation, but like it's hashtag housing <laughs> segregation and everything. It's relevant. <laughs> it is relevant. Um, but the the whole the whole point of it is that teachers um, are leaving at higher rates than they were before. So teacher exits out of the classroom has been accelerated, um, and while there have been some recent efforts, so. Some states have done have given teachers hazard pay during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the proposals have been like, you know, a thousand dollar bonus check. Um, a lot of them have been insufficient to keep teachers on. Right. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is just how unprepared governments are for the severity of this teacher exodus. Mm-hmm. How um, I think a lot of a lot of states, a lot of municipalities have really underplayed just how unhappy teachers are. Um, so part of, you know, a huge part of the American Recovery Act um, and the funding that went out as a part of that was around um, worker retention and then specifically teacher retention. And what we saw um, in proposals from states and suggestions on how to spend money were a lot of we're going to give teachers a one-time bonus or, you know, we're going to um, do this kind of one-time activity or we're going to support teachers in this really specific kind of, again, way that expires, right? There were not there were not substantial efforts to really fix some of the underlying structural issues that result in teachers being unhappy or leaving the classroom altogether. So right. what we didn't see were a ton of states saying like, hey, we're actually going to, you know, 
index teacher pay to inflation. We're going to make sure that teacher pay is um, is tied to similar careers or similar, you know, some colleagues who have similar levels of education in other types of careers or industries. We're not going to lower um, the the class size ratio, so making it easier on teachers to give them fewer kids. Uh, we're not going to make these um, really important facility upgrades that would actually give teachers a nice place to be or like right. maybe a room to like be away from kids at a certain point because you kind of need that. Give them access to like the latest technology, give mm-hmm. them access to, you know, textbooks that are actually up to date to give them any sort of meaningful, you know, yeah, any sort of meaningful support. Yeah, I think and, so much. Oh, go ahead. There's just something about like a $1,000 bonus. Like if I'm making 35000 a year and you give me a $1,000, it's like, okay, cool. So now I have $36,000 a year. Like this... I'm telling you that I'm underpaid and you're like, here's one check once that cannot like is not life changing, is not something that can help me actually build any sort of stability, is not. It's insulting. Like, And it's one check once because we made you go back to work in the middle of a pandemic. Right. It's one check once. Thank you for risking your life due to a pandemic, due to the fact that we are expecting you now to also protect these children in case of a school shooter incident. Like your life is forfeit, essentially, like. But here's one thousand dollars once. Yes. Yeah. Another thing that I found interesting, interesting as kind of indicative of where teachers are right now. Um, so North Carolina every year they do a survey of their teachers and just trying to gain teacher experience. Um, this year, seven point two percent of um, teachers, staff who responded to that said that they um, their immediate plan was to actually quit the profession. So this survey was done, I believe, um, or at least it was concluded in June. Mm-hmm. So right as the school year was ending, um, seven point two percent of teachers say that I don't back. plan on coming back. Um, that number is typically around four percent. So it's almost doubled, which is actually a significant amount. That's thousands of teachers who plan on leaving. Um, the other thing I think is indicative uh, is this, you know, so this time around, it was a record number of people who actually took the survey. And so, oh, like, oh you're so, going to get this feedback. Like, <laughs> not only are they saying that they're, but like, you should believe it because I think this is 92% of all um, educators in the state actually completed the survey. All which educators is, or everyone who was asked to take the survey? Everyone who was asked to take the survey, gotcha. which is an astounding percentage. Yeah, I do survey. Like part of my job is doing surveys and 92 percent is not av- like it's not remotely mm. average. Like it's not the norm. It's not no. the median. It's not the mode. Like it's not no. what you typically 92% see. 92 percent means people are pissed. Yes, exactly. Either people are pissed or people are so happy that they need people to know that how happy they are. And that is very rarely the case. Yes. People are much freer with negative feedback. So... I have conceded that I cannot spend this episode talking about all the reasons why all the teachers are leaving. <laughs> but just most. <laughs> I can talk about a couple of different things, okay. right? Um, and the first thing I want to talk about is teacher pay. Mm-hmm. So the way that most school districts are funded um, is a combination of state and local funding. In most states, there is a base teacher pay. So they'll pay all their teachers make at least X amount of money. Um, and then they have these things called local supplements where a city or county can provide extra money to, you know, you know, raise teacher pay, mm-hmm. incentivize teachers to teach in that particular county or city or whatever it may be. And that can be to, like, offset the cost of living in a exactly. specific area or exactly. offset the, like— I guess, non-financial cost of living in a specific area. Right, right. If it's tough to get people to go there. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with that, and I just said we're not going to talk about uh, housing segregation. But, but, you know, just put a bookmark in it, another episode. Just talk about it, homie. So the way, way oftentimes, and this is not the case for every municipality, but in a lot of cases— more often than not, teacher pay um, is really the the supplemental pay that teachers get is a, is a result of property taxes. So, mm-hmm. you know, municipalities that have higher property taxes, that have higher value homes, um, have more money to pay their teachers. And so there's an incentive for teachers to come and teach in those places. Um, it, there's also a disincentive for teachers to leave for whatever mm-hmm. reason. That's a whole nother story. Um, talking, you know, there's 
there's a whole nother story um, talking about, you know, the the system that kind of te- keeps teachers in place, regardless of whether or not they're doing good, well or driving student outcomes or, or not. The other thing um, is that teacher pay. So that's how te- that's how teachers generally are paid. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just deep inequities there because of housing segregation. Yes. The other thing, and see, this is why it's so hard for me to do this episode because everything is connected, right? But yes. like, well, we are at the we're at the intersection. So go. like the <laughs> proliferation of charter schools. Mm. Um, we have to do a charter school episode. <sighs> Essentially, I mean, and the proliferation of charter schools, the the use of vouchers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think these are complex conversations, right? Like, not all charter schools are bad. Um, not every, I you know, ch- vouchers. I well, I have personal thoughts on vouchers, right? Like, I think vouchers undermine public education. But <laughs> what all of these things do is that while they may be providing alternatives, while they may be providing local flexibility to like, yeah, I want to pay my teachers more because we have the budget to do so. Um, what that does is it incentivizes um, parents who have means, wealthy parents to migrate to particular school districts. Um, and it discourages parents of means, wealthy parents um, to put their kids into school systems and districts that they feel are not funded well enough, right? Yes. And so they're effectively taking, you know, when you when you take your child out of a public school, that school um, does not receive the funding that they would. And so it actually makes it more challenging for those schools to um, recruit and retain teachers, to pay for, you know, additional things that would make student experiences better, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so you vicious know, cycle. I mean, you keep on giving more flexibility, more alternatives and more opportunities to the people who have access to flexibility, opportunities, alternatives, and taking those away. Like, it's a hoarding thing where they are hoarding mm-hmm. all of the best in everything. And then they point to the they point to the public schools that they've just pulled all of their money and resources from and say, well, see, I can't send my kid there. It doesn't have any money. It's like, you have them. You are holding the money. Like, you have all the bags of money and you are taking them, actively taking them from these other public schools. Like, it's it's very frustrating. Systems of oppression protect and replicate themselves. Yes, and justify themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then make it look like it's a natural thing, right? Yes. And Well, it's because Black students are harder to teach, and it's because Black students are, you know, don't care about education, and Black parents don't care about education, and that's why, because if they did, then they would send their kids to XYZ school, or they would... It's a whole... It's an awful pathologizing of essentially, like, poverty and being victims of segregation. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's hard for um, a lot of schools who may be in need of teachers um, to recruit and retain because it it is actually difficult to fund those positions um, because of how we've chosen to fund public education. Even in the best of circumstances, teachers are still unpaid, right? Like, I don't I don't. I don't want to say there are no teachers who are paid what they should be being paid, but like teachers in D.C. are getting paid (laughs) very well (laughs) from what I've heard. But, you know, even and this is true um, in just about everywhere you go. But if you're looking at what a teacher makes in a particular school district or county, if you look to what their colleagues with similar levels of education um, or training or whatever have, they're making more in different industries. So. You know, industry to industry comparison, teachers are generally making a lot less. Mm -hmm. What we've typically done, right, is is justified this by, you know, the non-financial tangibles of being a teacher, which are, you know, it's a noble profession. But if you've ever taught, um, you know, it's teaching is the hardest job I've ever done. It's the job I've been paid the least to ever do. Um, And and yeah. Well, it's like I imagine that the language is similar to what you get in the nonprofit industrial complex, that if you care about this job, you shouldn't want to get paid. You should just do it for the love of the job. You should do it for the kids. You should do it for, you know, all of those intangibles that you were talking about when what you're doing is gaslighting people into feeling like they should not be paid what they are worth and they should not be paid for their labor, which is extremely it's extremely high stakes labor and it's high skills labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So teacher pay is one thing. Um, I think it's a big thing. Um, we could do a lot more on teacher pay. 
we do a lot more on pay in general. More people get need to be paid more money for yes. a lot of different jobs. Yes. Not all of them. And some people need to be paid less money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, <laughs> so other things um, teachers talk about. Um, burnout. Um, is one, and I think uh, I think the the conversation about burnout is tied to a lot of other things. So tied to the fact that you know a lot of school districts or a lot of states, because they have disinvested in public funding, um, and and we can like there are very real case studies that have demonstrated just the complete um, decimation of school budgets um, at the state level. Um, you know, there's less resources; they have less. TA support, teaching assistant support, support, teachers are doing more roles, right? So like in a in a typical school building, ideally you have administration, you have support staff. So that ranges all the way from janitorial staff to um, cafeteria staff to um to quote unquote safety workers, whoever that may be, mm-hmm. school resource officers. This is a completely mm-hmm. different conversation, a different podcast. We've done half of that podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We'll do the other half someday. <laughs> um, but also, you know, it also includes people like instructional coaches. Um, so people who help to, like, interpret um, standards and help to, you know, help teachers lesson plan. And then, because when you, you know, you're as a as a teacher, you're actually doing your you're being a mentor to these children who are in front of you. You are giving them instruction. You're designing these plans. You're doing a lot of um, like social emotional work. Mm-hmm. You're doing all the social emotional work. Um, and so the less individuals that are in a school building to support, um, the more of that burden that falls on the teacher. Um, what has not happened is like teacher standards has, has not dropped, but um, teacher supports has dropped. Yeah. Um, and so when you have kind of those situations, um, in addition to the fact that you now have eight states where it's illegal to teach critical race theory, um, whatever they think that that means, um, you have teachers who are like actually receiving threats. You have principals um, and administrators who have been who have lost their jobs um, because they've been teaching American history. Um as it happened. Right. The truth about American history. <laughs> um, and so, you know, all of those things do contribute to an environment where um, even if teachers are are teaching regardless of the low pay, um, even if they are, um, you know, teaching regardless of the additional burdens that have been asked, asked upon them, even if they're teaching regardless of the fact that they now have to also teach children how to hide um, during an active shooter drill, right? Like they are... There are individuals and teachers who are now actually being targeted um, for things like critical race theory. Um, and so and so all of these things combined, I don't think there are I don't think there's you know one list of why all these teachers are leaving the classroom. Um, but I do think all of these things come together to really to a point where a lot of teachers who who love what they do um, are kind of looking and just saying, like, this ain't worth it. Yeah, um, I cannot do this any longer. Um, and, and uh, you know, there's not a ton of data that really captures – I don't think there's a ton of data that captures well um, how much a lot of people are actually struggling um, with wanting to stay in the classroom and do a job that they love, a job that they went to college for, um, a job that they took out student loans for mm-hmm. um, versus a job that can actually help them to support themselves where they're not working 70 hours a week. Um, and where they can actually have the freedom to, you know, use their intellect to do the things that they want to do and like actually contribute, right? So, and um, not having to like, I mean, pay for schools of like pay for things for students out of their own pockets, like. Even just thinking about like what you just said about student loans, student loan debt is just increasing by the year. That school is getting more and more expensive. Like all of higher education is getting more and more expensive. And there's this, the cultural response to people saying, I have too much student loan debt to survive is, well, why did you even, why did you go into debt? You shouldn't have done that. You should have, you should have gone to community college or you should have done something that was cheaper. And then you also don't respect people who went to community college. Like there's just, there's no way of winning beyond just being rich. And I think, you know, it's, Public education is an interesting thing because so many people it is it is probably one of the functions of government that a majority of people have had um, thorough experiences with Mm -hmm. and still 
like there's so much messaging about what schools are doing wrong um and and not enough about like maybe we should like fund them right. <laughs> um, and and also like you know this is not to say that schools teachers educators administrators are 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 not you know should not be critiqued like there's a lot of stuff that is not going well um <laughs> and those should certainly be critiqued but it 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 is hard to hold institutions like that to a high standard if you're not investing in them and actually taking them serious as important institutions um, that are worthy of investment and holding them to high standards. And the message, yeah, like you said, like the message that we're getting from what governments are willing to spend on and from what narratives they're willing to support is that they don't take it seriously anymore. Like they don't take public education seriously as a priority anymore, as something that does need to be held to high standards, as something that does need any sort of financial or cultural support. I mean, the message is, oh, we should, I mean, just charter schools and private schools should just take over. And, you know, I would not be surprised. I mean, we were just talking about how Amazon is trying to take over the world and they're getting involved in the healthcare industry and they have, you know, defense contracts with with uh, the NSA. But like, I would not be surprised if they're also moving into the education field at some point. And we're just going to see the privatization of everything that used to be a public good. And that seems to be what... I mean, the people who are in power are the ones who are going to benefit from that. And so I'm sure they're like, oh, yeah, that's that sounds great. Just make this all private, make this all taken over by inst- like by corporations. And so that doesn't have to be a public good anymore. We don't have to pay for it anymore. And rich people can pay for it. Poor people will continue to be left behind and we'll just continue to pathologize and penalize them for it. And, and the thing and I. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and I think that there are a lot of arguments out there of like why it's so important that we support public education. Right. Like people make the argument it's important for our economy to have a well-educated workforce. It's um, people make the argument it's it's critical to our national defense to have a well. But like all those things, I, I all those things aside, I think what we know is that there was a time period where we did not have equitable access to education right Mm -hmm. and we weren't like it wasn't cool it wasn't it was not great (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't the best decision one thing i did want to talk about was like the so what Mm -hmm. um because i think that there are a lot of people who would look at kind of what's happening with teacher exodus and make your argument of like, well, if public schools aren't serving teachers, they're not serving students, you know, why continue to pour money into this school system, this public education school system? Um, or why continue to try to pay teachers more money when, you know, there are, are there are alternatives. Right. Um, so I wanted to talk about like what some of those alternatives actually could look like. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> And this is more like a doomsday sort of situation. Oh, so, so. You are such an optimist. So, this will be a refreshing change of pace. Oh, there's I don't I didn't plan for um uh, a happy ending on this one. <laughs> <laughs> what, we might we might get there at a conversation. <laughs> so a couple of things that are the implications of an exodus of teachers. One of which um is that there there's a lot about there's a lot written, a, a lot um, studied on the impact of having an education workforce that reflects the students that they are educating. Mm-hmm. That's a long way of saying, you know, black and brown kids have better educational outcomes when they also have black and brown teachers yes. um, in their schools with them. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, they're all about racism and the fact that <laughs> the reasons are racism <laughs> and 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 again um we can i can certainly like link to some of those studies that more thoroughly explain like actually what happens in a classroom um when teachers share certain um certain commonalities with their students and how that actually creates a better environment for learning or blah 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 blah, blah and a better association long term with like education in general it's anyway point is um you need black and brown teachers in schools especially as the student population is actually increasingly more black and brown. Mm-hmm. Um, but currently something like less than 10% of black of teachers are black. Um, around 
10 to 12 percent of teachers in the U.S. are Hispanic, um, Hispanic or Latinx. Um, and a vast majority of teachers are white. Um, we're seeing the exodus again. We've talked about this before is disproportionately black and brown teachers who are leaving. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, if you have student loans, um, black and brown folk are more likely to hold student loan debt than mm-hmm. than white workers. Um, and if your job is not paying you enough to cover your student loan debt, then you got to, you know, get another job. Exactly. <laughs> um, so if education is not allowing you to pay back your student loans, then you have to leave. Um, there are so many examples of um, how that's actually gotten worse in the past decade. So North Carolina had the North Carolina Teaching Fellows Program, where essentially they said, if you go to a you know, UNC system school in the state of North Carolina, um, and you teach for a certain number of years, you know, you, well, you, you don't have to pay anything for your college. Mm. They removed that program. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so, and, there it is. and that was actually a huge, um, a huge, uh, source of black teachers in the state of North Carolina. Um, what you see as an alternative, um, are, you know, these private part, private, public partnerships. Um, So things like Teach for America, um, where, you know, there's a recognition that there's not enough teachers, not enough people going into the education force. And so they're attempting to get, um, and Teach for America is a decades old um, organization now, but, you know, their goal is to help to get more teachers into the classroom. Um, But a Teach for America teacher is not a replacement for Um, someone who went to school for education and um, someone who is actually teaching in the community either near or where they grew up. Mm. Um, And I say that as a former Teach for America teacher, that Teach for America is not great. You (laughs) (laughs) and your wife were both TFA. Yeah, yeah. And And a lot of my friends were like, I feel like a lot of, it makes sense for our peer group, like a lot of people that we know were TFA. Yeah, so, yeah. I, yeah, I had, yep, I had thoughts I wanted to reveal uh, my deep, dark history that... <laughs> is that your sort of secret? <laughs> no, no. So, I mean... Because it is very easily findable information. <laughs> but uh, but about, you know, about Teach for America and programs similar to that, because there are other programs that are not TFA that are just as terrible. Um, and I have a lot of friends who I did teach with who are still in the classroom, who are amazing, excellent teachers. Um, my wife, who did TFA with me, is still in education. She left the classroom two years ago or three years ago, um, but is still in public education um, and works in education funding. And so, like, you know, I do think that there are plenty of folk who do this, who um, who, you know, go on to either be amazing teachers or continue to support students in great ways. But like more often than not, that's not the case. Right. Um, and what's more concerning than like the individuals, which like there are some really terrible people who TFA puts in front of kids. What's more concerning though, is like this model, um, this kind of public adjacent model of putting teachers into classrooms that are high need. Yeah. And so essentially what, programs like that allow us to do is to outsource, um, you know, what is really an essential public role of finding the best people to go into schools where students need help the most. Um, And it's all, you know, it's, there are, it's, it's racist. um, Everything's racist. um, (laughs) But really though, I mean, it's, it's kind of really based on like this model of benevolence and, um, and when we allow structures like that to replace, like, the role of government, um, what actually ends up happening is that it's replic- – we talked about it, it's replicating these systems of oppression. Yes. Um, which is kind of the reason why in 1868 the delegates at the South Carolina State Convention were like, hey, uh, we need a universal public commitment to education. Um, and so, you know, every day we just stray further from, uh, <laughs> from that light. Further from that light. <laughs> no, but I mean, public private partnerships and other private sector sort of solutions are not a sufficient fix to the giant gaps in the social safety net that the private sector is also creating, that is also just sort of like ripping apart. And it's things like TFA that 
people say, oh, well, you know, this will be this will be perfect. Like, this, this is a solution. We've got this private public partnership, blah, blah, blah. It's still it's still parachuting people into high need areas that have no sense of like the geographic or cultural context, the social context, don't have any ties to the community. And so that's why you see such churn with TFA teachers, because they don't have any ties. They don't they don't have. They're not teaching here for any specific reason. It's where they got placed. And they'll leave after two years because it's really difficult because they are not supported by any sort of meaningful infrastructure. They don't care about these kids. And even if they did, like they they are getting so little support in a community that they have no relationship to. Like it's it's not sufficient. It's not suitable. And this is true for, you know, this is true for the nonprofit industry. I keep bringing it back because that's my closest, I think, connection to being a teacher. But like having national organizations just sort of parachute into local communities because, oh, you're in North Carolina and it's a presidential election year, so we need to come in here and do what we think is best for this national strategy, having no connection to the community, having no sense of how things actually work, what the actual problems are, what strategies are already trying to be put in place that just need, you know, support, funding, blah, blah, like people getting out of the way. And it doesn't help anything. Like there's no actual progress there's no way to move forward because you're not actually solving anything you are just coming in temporarily and just sort of it's not even a band-aid on something like it is just well that looks bad we're doing our best like that's all it is and it's yeah it's very frustrating but it seems to be just sort of the only thing that people want because people do not want a government that actually solves problems that actually provides a strong social safety net actually provides public goods like education and I do think, like, ultimately, the, you know, if public education, if we're investing in public education the way that we're supposed to um, and supporting students in public schools the way that we're supposed to, like, what that means, what that means is a fundamental shift in power, right? Like, a fundamental shift in um, people exiting public schools will have more options, right? They will have the ability to choose how to employ their labor, um, they'll have the ability to choose, um, you know, how they want to participate in the economy. Um, and now I'm going to sound like one of my uncles, but like, that's not what they want. Right. Like that's not that is that is not that is that is effectively that is an effective threat to um, to kind of how we understand our economic systems. Right. Like if we're graduating people from these public schools who have the ability to. Um, choose exactly what they want to do and where they want to go and how they want to work, then um, we're going to have to pay people more money. Um, We're not going to be able to completely subsidize this really cheap service economy. Um, We're going to have to rethink things like Amazon. Um, People are going to have more options. And the goal of public education is to give people options. And so if you give people enough options, um, somebody's going to have to give up some of your hoarded wealth. Right. Um, and that's a serious, I mean, that that ultimately is, that's, I think that's the threat that public education posed in its origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's still the threat that public education poses today. Um, and so, you know, while we don't have, well, I was going to say, while we don't have the same language of white supremacy governments we used to have, but that's not true. Right. (laughs) We absolutely have. Like, it's just, you know, more refined. Yeah. And even over the past, you know, over the previous presidential administration, it got way less refined, but it's still it's still the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's hyperbole to um, to equate the underinvestment in public education to, you know, our status as a democracy. Um, I do think that, you know, the idea that privatizing things like education go hand in hand with the idea of, you know, privatizing healthcare, Mm -hmm. private, you know, all these are basic essential things that we've agreed are important um, but that we have not agreed are worthy of like a, a collective commitment, right. which they're is like not, the whole, which is the whole universally purpose, important. Which they're... is the whole purpose of all of like why are we why are we doing why are this we in whole a society? Thing? Like why do we have a government? <laughs> like it's the idea of the collective is such. I mean, we've seen this over the past two years with the pandemic. The idea of the collective good is 
so far from Americans' minds. Like, it's just not, it's not, priority is too strong a word. Like, it's just not a concept that they have any sort of buy-in to, that I should say, wait, that we have any sort of buy-in to. The idea that, yeah, education is important for me and my kids. It is not important for all kids. Healthcare is important for me and my family. It's not important for all families. I need to make sure that I have it. And if somebody else have, has more options, that means I have fewer options. And this, this sort of gleeful erosion of every sort of public support that we've seen over the past, I mean, 40 years is, I don't even know the word for it. Like, it's just, we are abandoned in such a meaningful way. And... I don't know what sort of recourse there is. And that's why I wanted to that's why I wanted to begin the episode with Abbott Elementary. Oh, phew. Bring because, it back. Bring me back to something good. Because <laughs> I, I think what Abbott does, and I think the reason why we have not seen like a school-based show like this before, um, in this manner, is because it it is clearly created by somebody who had a deep, intimate experience with public education. I think her mother, Quinta's mother, was a school teacher. Um, and what it shows is, you know, the joy that happens in in a school, um, the, the really, it, it demonstrates just through the, the students, it demonstrates just how much... Um, how much just learning is happening, um, how much creativity there is. Um, I mean, school buildings, I don't, I'm again biased because the, you know, the child of educators, like I think a school building is just a really super special, important place. Um, I think one thing that Abbott does really well is that it does not hyper focus on the issues that students and teachers are facing. Mm-hmm. Um it also does not make light. Um, it doesn't make, you know, their struggles the butt of the joke. Um, the butt of the jokes are always, like, just the quirkiness of, like, you know, relationships with your colleagues. And Ava. <laughs> As a principal. <laughs> um, but what it, I think for me what it really demonstrates is, like, there's a whole bunch of people in this building who care a lot about kids. And these kids are super smart and extremely interested in learning. And, like, they're working through this thing together. Um, and it also does highlight the hip- the hypocrisies mm-hmm. that exist um, in school systems, especially at the local level, right? Like, um, it demonstrates just, like, the absurdity that is how underfunded schools are, right? Um, it's hard to watch it. We have to do more with less. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard not to watch it. it. Even there's an episode where they, you know, contract out to this company who's going to come and help them advance their technology, mm-hmm. which is, like, a, just an extremely, you know— we could do a whole episode that talks about contracts, mm-hmm. right? Public contracts for schools, um, talking about the creation of these tests, standardized tests, the creation of textbooks, how those contracts are done, who actually gets to create these textbooks and the ridiculousness that goes into them, um, the lack of oversight, et cetera, et cetera, right? There, there's so many things there. But I think that show really does touch on like these very real experiences that teachers and educators and students are having. Um, but it doesn't rely on just, you know, showing them down and out. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows them in a way that I think centralizes them and like gives them power. Yeah, it is both really clear eyed and honest and optimistic, which is a very hard. It's a hard needle to thread. Mm-hmm. It's like. Yeah, it's very different to season four of The Wire, which is like the education, like the public school season, um, which is very clear eyed and honest about the failings of the system. And it's not optimistic in any way. Like you don't end that season feeling like, I think, you know, I think we've got some good ideas here. You end it feeling like, well, everything is fucked. Like these I'm- these students, <laughs> these teachers, Baltimore, it's all fucked. Like Abbott Elementary is able to be optimistic and to leave you feeling like, there are good ideas on the table. There are good people at work here. And like, there's something that I can plug into. There's something that I can connect to and try to support myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think especially in contrast, like I love um, Morgan Freeman, but like Lean On Me 
is a really is not that a is great. Some harmful, <laughs> that is some real anti-black shit. Like. And so, but I, and I think like the trans, I, I think what Abbott does well is like it does not do that, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's not um, Dangerous Minds. It's not whatever that Hillary Swank movie with Mario is. Like. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you know, Abbott Elementary. My takeaways are: give Abbott all the all the Emmys mm-hmm. for your consideration. Give teachers all the money. Yeah. Um, and that's it. So, Marion, what are you reading? Oh, I am reading two books right now. I've been trying to get back into reading for fun and reading fiction in particular. Um, so I'm reading The Scent of Burnt Flowers by Blitz Bazaoule, which I don't know if fun is the right word for this one, actually, because it is about a Black couple seeking asylum in the 1960s in Ghana. Um So fun is the wrong word, but I am reading kind of for pleasure. Um, And then I'm about to start a book that I'm really excited about called Burnt Sugar by Avni Doshi, um, which is just about mothers and daughters and those sort of fraught relationships. Um, So, yeah, those are the two books that I'm in right now. And of course, I'm watching Abbott Elementary. What are you reading? Um, I am still reading Filthy Animals um, from Brandon Taylor. Um, and I'm just watching Abbott Elementary, mm-hmm. just trying to rack up those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Look, just as as many times as you can watch that show, rewatch that show, tell your friends to stream that show, because that is how, you know, I mean, it doesn't need any help with the ratings. It's already been renewed for season two, but right. we just need to support it so people understand. I need 10 seasons, 10 seasons guaranteed. <laughs> Whatever Quinta wants, if she wants 10 seasons, I want that for her. Six seasons in a movie, at least. Yeah. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks for listening. We record our show in Queenie's in downtown Durham. Our music was produced by DJ Seven Keys. You can find more of him and his music at www.sevenkeysbeats.com and on Instagram at at Mr. Underscore Seven Keys. That's the numeral seven on both. You can follow us on all social media at at the podcast. That's A-T-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And we have merch. Get your How Do You Want Your Reparations t-shirt and or mug at www.attheintersection.bigcartel.com. Our website is www.at-the-intersection.com where you can find all of our episodes and you can go there uh, to lob us some financial support if you'd like to. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to at the intersection of at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else that podcasts are found. Mm-hmm.